So how many of you saw the, the email that I sent out? And there was that quote in the email from Father Sergius Bogalkov that says, kill the flesh to acquire a body. And, and so that was kind of the way I wanted to begin tonight, was talking about that quotation. And it brings to mind a lot of things. Um, it brings to mind, potentially, for many people, and, and it, well, it could bring to mind the notion of dualism. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like what dualism is? What do you think it is? Kevin, do you know what it is? <laughs> well, I mean, my take on that is that you're, you're fighting the flesh versus trying to become more spiritual. Yeah, that would be one way of saying it. Like you're trying to destroy the flesh, sort of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Linda. Jesus is dual, correct? Well, He's divine and human, yeah. yeah. Being and two um, one? what's that? Being two things in one? Um. It could mean that in contemporary language, but typically what we're talking about when we talk about a dualistic view of the world or a dualistic view of the cosmos or a theological view or a philosophical view, a dualist understanding of reality kind of posits the idea almost as if there's two gods. There's a God that's good and spiritual and there's a God that's bad that has everything to do with whatever is material. And, and so Father Sergius, actually, in one of his books, in talking about this, he says it's the notion that nature was created by a white god, who's like, you know, the light or whatever, and a somber black god, like somebody that's darkness, that creates like all the... And the reason that dualistic systems and understandings of the world um, appear throughout history is because it's an attempt to explain, um, it's an attempt to try to explain the evil and the problems that are in the world. So if you think about what Christianity teaches, that the world was created by a good God who is love and who wills that all be saved and that like, you know, and all these things, um, then how is it that evil exists? Well, a very easy way to try to explain it is that, well, it's all the effect of this, this bad God, you know, that kind of made everything. And, but then what ends up happening, um, and this is something that Father Sergius notes, that there isn't really any serious or enduring philosophical system or understanding of the world that really has this kind of dualist quality to it. And the reason is, is because if you posit that there is God and there is also the anti-God that's just as much God as God, well, then God isn't God and it's just a self-defeating system. <laughs> you know? and, um, and, and also it kind of, it ends with a, a closure um, of, of, of everything. And, and, so, um, and so he talks about that it, it kind of exhausts itself really quickly. Um, and in the spiritual life, we have to be attentive not to turn the things that we do, fasting, um, abstaining from one thing or another, disciplining the body, 
trying to be chased, um, and and all of these things, we have to be careful that that doesn't become a dualism in itself, where we're sort of viewing the body as something that's inherently evil. Because it's not. The body is good. It was created by God. And in its natural state, like, it's, it's very good. You know? And, and this goes into even the... You'll notice when we say in the creed, at the end of the creed, we speak of how we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life in the age to come. Why is that? It's because the body is actually raised to this new life in God and transformed. And, and so it's not left behind. And so we don't share the understanding with many um, uh, popular misconceptions that the soul and the spiritual is all that matters and that matter doesn't really matter. Um, we don't share the understanding with, um, with many um, that the body is somehow just a prison or like a shell of the soul that gets like sloughed off at the end of life, um, that it's something that we need to be set free from. It's more that we need to be set free within it, you know. And, um, and, and when we think about the soul and the body, when we think about the human person, we have to think about those two terms in, in the sense that instead of them being separate parts of a human being, we see them as different aspects of the whole human being. You know? And, um, and so in some terms, there's a certain term that gets used sometimes in philosophy where you would describe something as a moment of something else. So if you could think about in time and when you look around and think about moments, moment to moment, and how you can distinguish a moment, one moment from another, right? But it's completely caught up, you know, in, in the whole flow of one moment to another. And so you can distinguish it intellectually, conceptually, and yet, at the same time, you know that it's part of a, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a piece that you're pulling out, you know, because it doesn't exist other than as participating in the whole flow of, of time and of being and of existence. Um, so the same way when we think about the body, the soul and the body are, you could say they're moments of one another, you could say that they're aspects of the whole human being. And, and that's what we'll get into now for St. Paul, when he uses this term body in the New Testament, if he's talking about the body of the believer and the body of Christ, he's talking about the whole person, you know, as manifest and, and disclosed and known, you know. <laughs> and, um, but when he uses the term flesh, there's something else going on. And he's talking about an aspect of human being that is weak, that is corruptible in the sense that it falls apart, you know, <laughs> over time and eventually ceases to exist, um, at least in the way that it is now, you know, it disintegrates in the earth. Um, and so we're going to get into, you know, those, those two terms. 
And so the first thing, and this comes from this book, I'm, I'm going to make a copy of this article by Father Vladan Perisic. It's a Serbian name, so I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. There's some weird like, <laughs> signs above the letters. Actually, maybe Tyson, you might be able to. <laughs> uh, Vladan Perisic. Perisic. So it's a great book. Um, it's heady. Um, but it's called, and even the title is a bit challenging. It's called Theological Disambiguations. <laughs> so he's, what he's doing in the book, throughout the book, so, so this chapter is about the inner man, the body, and the flesh in St. Paul's writings in the New Testament. And what does he mean by these terms? And because these terms are notorious for being misunderstood. Um, uh, just like terms like the world in the New Testament is very, it can mean so many different things depending on the context and what's being talked about. So on the one hand, the world is um, opposed to God, you know, and on the other hand, and, and really irredeemable. And then on the other hand, the same term, world or cosmos, is used to describe the world that God so loved that he sent his only son to save it. And... And so clearly when the term is being used in these different contexts, it, it means something. It's talking about something different. Um, the same thing with terms like flesh, body, all that. And, and so he kind of, throughout this book, he deals with a lot of stuff like that, like terms and things that are difficult. And that's why they're, they're ambiguous. They're ambiguities. And he's trying to disambiguate them. <laughs> he's trying to clear them up and make sense of what they really mean. Um, and so one of the first things that he says in talking about Paul's teaching in the New Testament about the body and about the flesh is that Paul's concept of the human being is not a dualistic one. <laughs> we have to have that in our head. Um, and then also we could say about the Christian tradition itself in the way that we practice asceticism, so the way that we practice fasting or keeping vigil. You know, it's a common thing for monastics and for, for Christians throughout the ages to stay up all night praying or something like that, or to wake up in the middle of the night to pray. So deprive themselves of sleep, right? And we know how precious and valuable sleep is, and they deprive themselves of it um, for the sake of, of spiritual life. And, but they're not doing that out of the sense of dualism. There's a subtle difference about what our motivation is for doing all of these things. And so there's this quote from another, um, he's a scholar of, of Christian history, his name's Peter Brown. And he says, to describe ascetic thought, so the, the, the thinking of the church about spiritual struggle, to describe ascetic thought as dualist and as motivated by hatred of the body is to miss its most novel and its most poignant aspect. Seldom in ancient thought had the body been seen as more deeply implicated in the transformation of the soul, and never was it made to bear so heavy a burden. So he's saying the Christian tradition actually places a huge emphasis on the value of the body in actually transforming the soul based on what you do with it. You know, and whereas for the Gnostics, um, there's like early kind of her, um, 
heretical groups uh, that had a very different understanding. So they felt the body was just something that either you just live with it completely licentiously and just so meaning like there's there's no boundary to what you do, you know, in terms of your your sinfulness and self-indulgence because the body is a piece of trash or you kill the body because the body is a piece of trash. Like either you know, they were kind of either two, two of those things. And um, whereas the Christian tradition has much more of this sense of the value of the body, but also the recognition of its weakness and the need for, for it to be taught. But then we find out that as it's taught, like it actually teaches us. <laughs> you know, like, so there's this whole thing going on because, it's, because what we're talking about is the whole person in the process of being redeemed. And, and like I said before, there's never like a, a dividing wall where like the one, you know, here's the body over here and then here's the soul over here and the soul is the real person but the body's not. And yeah, you know, it's, it's there, there's a unity of, of body and soul. And, um, and so Father Vladon quotes, um, I think he's a Lutheran theologian, theologian Boltman, um, in his thinking when he's talking about what St. Paul teaches and Boltman said, man does not have a body, he is a body. You know, it's not something, it's not, the body is not something the soul necessarily possesses, it's something the person is. Um, and this has to do with the person, with each one of us, being embodied in a particular place and environment. So we're, we're, we're somewhere. And it, and it actually, it, it has the implication too that being a body means it's relational. You know, that this is our means, our mode of being able to relate with one another. Um, and you know, obviously, uh, if you just think about, some of you, have, if, like you guys have given birth, right? <laughs> so you can think about that reality of relation from one body to another and how profound it is. And, um, uh, and you could imagine, you know, think about like, well, would you want your children to be bodiless, <laughs> just sort of these empty like ghosts that you can't interact with or something. Um, and so, so our bodiness itself, the fact that we have a body, it enables us to interact with one another. And, and even when we talk about, and this is something Father Vladan says, he says when we talk about the body being a temple of the Holy Spirit, um, he says, because the body, right, like, like we are a body and don't just have a body, when we say the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, it's not, we're not talking about the body just being like, like a container, like a bottle that's like full of wine or something like that. Um, but he says, and this is a quote from his writing, when we say the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, what we mean is that the Holy Spirit is in us in our personalities, which are not bodiless souls, but embodied persons who, owing to their bodies, can enter concrete relationships with one another and those from their, he uses a German term called Lebenswelt, which means like their life world. Um, and inside this world of living, of, of relating and, you know, with others, the Holy Spirit is able to be manifest in that exactly because they are corporeal bodies, because Christians have bodies. Yeah, go ahead. So it's not just that the Holy Spirit is 
surrounding you, it's actually in you. Right, and being manifest from one to another, you know, via this reality of bodily existence. And, um, and because of this reality too, because we have bodies and can relate to one another in bodies, Christians can form a church as a corporate body. And, and he continues, just as every living body has, its, has a head, so does the church. The head of the church is none other than Christ himself, who relates with us, you know, after the resurrection, he tells his disciples, come and touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so he relates to them once again after the resurrection in this glorified manner as a body, you know. <laughs> um, and so even though in the kingdom of God, at the end of all things, like we say in the creed that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life, of the, and the life to come, even though the body is transformed, it's still the mode of our relation with others. Um, and now, so that's, that's the body, right? So when St. Paul uses that term, and we can think about, so when, in the beginning, that quote from Father Sergius, kill the flesh to acquire a body, well, what is he saying? He's saying kill the flesh in order to become a whole person, a complete person. And, and we would even say, you know, kill the flesh in order to become a holy person, you know, <laughs> a holy body, you know, and somebody through whom and in whom the Holy Spirit is manifest um, to people around us. And so now, though, just to continue to kind of clarify that quotation, we can talk about what St. Paul means when he says flesh. What is he talking about? So when you go to the store and you see there's flesh meat, like for sale... <laughs> You, know, you can get a, a, an understanding of like one aspect of what that term means. So the term flesh, it literally means flesh, like fleshy stuff, like a piece of steak, you know. <laughs> it's a, and um, so that's a, a physiological kind of thing. And um, I think you could see that in the scriptures. There's a verse that says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Can't remember where it is, so somebody will have to Google it. <laughs> you don't have to right now, but like, <laughs> but so all flesh shall see the salvation of God, right? But then Saint Paul talks about how flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So how can flesh not inherit the kingdom of God? But all flesh shall see the salvation of God, because in the one context, the one verse, it's speaking about flesh in terms of just physicality. <laughs> you know what I mean, like body. And, uh, but in the other term, it means something different. Um, so flesh can refer to that physiological reality, which is kind of a neutral reality. It's just the reality of being fleshy, being touchable. <laughs> you know? um, and then it can refer to a psychological reality. Um, so if we talked about somebody having, living according to the flesh, or thinking according to the flesh, or, or thinking in the flesh, you know, or being in the flesh, it would mean thinking in such a way, because remember how we said that the flesh, when we talk about it, that it's fleshy, that it falls apart, and it's corruptible, and eventually like it just turns into dust. Um, so when we say that somebody is thinking according to the flesh, it means they're thinking according to death, and they're acting according to death. And their behavior 
is, is out of the fear of death. Um, and so we can see those realities. I mean, that's what, that's what motivates Father John Mayendorf wrote a book about how one of the distinctions between orthodox, or an essay, one of the distinctions between orthodox belief and, and many other Christians is that we don't necessarily have a sense of original sin so much or like an original guilt that everyone inherits. We have an understanding that everyone is born into this world that's corruptible and they act accordingly, you know? And so why are there wars? Like what's going on in Ukraine right now? Like what's going on? It's the fear of not having enough power to take care of my own. You know, it's that acting according to the flesh in order to maintain one's existence and one's life and, and all of that. And um, now, obviously, when we act out of love, we're starting to overcome that mind that's according to the flesh. But, the, but whenever we don't, we're acting and living in that, that psychological way. We're acting according to the flesh. And, um, and then flesh also can have... So it's that neutral sense of just being a physicality, the psychological sense, which would, we would talk about as like sensuality and also all of these other things that are kind of motivated by just a raw desire for like self-preservation. Um, and then there's a cosmological sense. And so St. Paul, when he talks about the flesh, sometimes he's talking about like a whole, like, like, again, thinking about the world again, like the world in its negative sense as being like worldly and completely like cut off from relationship with God and even opposed to and fighting against, you know, God in creation. Um, and so it carries, you can see that it, it has like several different layers of, of um, meaning. And so we could kind of continue like refining those that flesh, when St. Paul talks about it, he is thinking about something that implies weakness, that implies corruptibility. It's easy to change, you know, one day, and you, you know, and, and then it's mortal. Um, and it can also have, when he's speaking about it, this kind of moral overtone. And so there's a verse where he says, those who are in the flesh are not able to please God, you know. And again, so that's living according to the reality, you know, the sort of submitting ourselves to the rule, the reign of death, you know, in creation. Um, and because of this, because of that kind of weakness, the flesh is seen as like being fertile soil for all kinds of sins. It's not the cause of those sins itself. It's not inherently evil, but it's weak. And it's a place where if you sow that kind of psychological fear and anger and all these other things, like you'll reap a really big, you know, reward of violence and all sorts of other things that from the flesh um, really easily. Um, and so St. Paul could talk to you about, he'll talk about the flesh desiring against the spirit. And, and you could say that thinking in its way of thinking, we cannot but think death. And then also St. Paul would say, if Christians want to achieve the true life, and this is a quote from Father Vladon, if Christians want to achieve the true life, and that is the life in Christ, as opposed to in the flesh, they have to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. In that way, they will cease to be fleshly, so like that adverb, while continuing to be fleshy. 
Does that make sense? Like if you crucify the flesh with its passions and desires in the way that St. Paul is talking about, you cease to be fleshly, but continue to be fleshy. <laughs> continue to have, have, have an embodied existence, like in this world. Yeah. So I just thought of something when Jesus tells the parable of the, the seed and sower. Mm -hmm. He talks about the different types of soil. Right. Is the, the soil the flesh? Well, that was a, you know, that's kind of fascinating because I, I had the same thought this morning. <laughs> when I, so Jess and Joey were here this morning and we were talking about this stuff. And, and I had the same thought about the parable of the sower. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, but the parable is also talking about like the failure of the soil to, pr to produce. Um, but the reason that it fails to produce, right, is because it's all clogged up with thorns or rocks or whatever, you know, if they, if they had, if on those paths, you know, if, if they had cleared those paths and kind of, you know, built some hedges around them and stuff like that, like the, the seeds would have grown really well if they had cleared away the thorns. Um, so, so at first I thought, well, maybe it's not a good comparison, but then when you start to think about it, it really might be. Uh, because if you think of the flesh as just being predominantly in its, um, predominantly passive. Oh. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> but if, if you think of the flesh as being um, predominantly passive, um, like the earth, it is kind of, you know, what you get out of it is what you sow into it. And, but then also, it can also have a lot of things in it that would make... Uh, sowing the good seed difficult. Um, and so you'd want to, in, in ascetical life, you'd want to start remove those things, remove those boulders, remove that other stuff, so that you can sow what's, what's good into it. And so maybe you could kind of say, um, uh, in terms of, you know, we could think about when people are, are struggling to recover from major addictions or something like that, one of the first things they have to do is, is stop the behavior, right? Um, and they mean and that, that requires like a lot of help. Um, but simultaneously with that, so that maybe that would be like pulling up the, the weeds, you know? But, but simultaneously with that, like they need a lot of good to be sown into that, you know? And they, they need a lot of like good habits and good, you know, the, the contemplation of good things and, and turning their hearts towards God and surrendering to Him. So there's all this, these other things that need to take place in order for the, the flesh to start to produce something good, you know? instead of something really negative and kind of, you know, choking the life out of the, the poor people. Um, and so, yeah, I think there is something there in, in thinking about the parable of the sword. <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead, Linda. It makes sense, though, what you guys are saying about, at least in my mind, the connection of us being one body with that. Because if we do imbibe in too much alcohol or whatever mm -hmm. thing, substance, and hurt the physical flesh, she, it also affects everything. Yeah. It hurts the, the soul, whole, too. The yeah, yeah. The whole person's hurt. Person, yeah. You know? And we can't, um, we can't uh, discount that. Um, and so, again, the flesh isn't the source of sin, but it is. It can be fertile ground for it. Like it'll grow that stuff really fast. If you, you know, 
and because of its weakness and its tendency towards corruptibility, um, which in in terms of we typically think of that term like we think about like the you know government corruption or something like that. We think of like immoral behavior, but in talking about the flesh, like when we're using that term corruptibility, it just means that it's it's changeable and it falls apart. <laughs> you know, it's like it's it's liable to die. Um, and um, and this is and so he continues. Um, this is Father Ladon again, that the weakness of human nature constituted as flesh is for Paul a constant aspect of humanity, which in this life cannot be dispensed with. So St. Paul kind of understands that we will be, um, have that, that element of weakness within us. It's not going to go away, you know, throughout our life. There's nothing that we can do to like, you know, <laughs> to pretend that it's not there. It's always going to be there. Um, and, um, and so he continues, our fleshness therefore, implies ultimate human, we can say ontological, so that has to do with the very being of who we are. So our fleshness implies ultimate human weakness, which inevitably leads to our death. And that's what we've been saying the whole time, like that that's the reality, you know, that we're in. And within that reality, you know, our mind can be awakened and our heart, right, to the life in Christ. Um, but for a long time, it can be the case that, that we feel like everything is dualistic, even though it's not. <laughs> you know? We feel like, because of that weakness, which brings on so much shame, you know, when we want to, you know, like where St. Paul in one of his letters talks about the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't do, I would do, and that I don't want to do, I do. And he says, how, how can anybody save me from this kind of terror of, of not being able to actually <laughs> do the things that I want to do? Because he's weak, you know? But then he says, but thanks be to God, you know, because Christ is there for me, that like in my weakness, Christ is made strong, you know? And, um, and so part of, a large part of the ascetical life is, is coming to terms in a lot of ways um, with our weakness. And, and so I want to read to you something from St. John of the Ladder that kind of encapsulates this reality. And there's, there's another book that we'll refer to in a minute that talks about the ascetical life. And her, her, it's by a woman named Elizabeth Theokritov. She was, uh, or is a um, contemporary theologian. But um, one of the things that she points out is in this book by St. John of the Ladder, the Ladder of the Divine Ascent. And that's why he's called Of the Ladder, because he wrote a book, The Ladder of Divine Ascent. Um, which I'm not, I've never been crazy of the metaphor of a ladder. Um, I've never really loved that metaphor because it seems to imply like, okay, I got the first step done and now I got the next step done and then the third one. And as if you don't have to kind of continually deal with some of the stuff he's talking about. So the, for instance, the first step is renunciation of the world. You know, it's like, well, that takes a lifetime. Like, I don't, <laughs> and, but you do, but, but on the other hand, you do have to renounce the world. Like, you have to embrace, like, when, when the gospels say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, like, you have to say, yes, I'm going to repent. Like, there has to be that first step. 
Um, but then that repentance doesn't stop, like it continues throughout your entire life. Um, whereas the latter metaphor, do you see what I'm saying? It could imply that, well, I already did that. I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> and, and it shouldn't be taken that way, and that's not what he's trying to do, but it can give you that impression. Um, but one of the things that Elizabeth Theokritov notices in the book is that early on in the book, when St. John is talking about the body, and again, he's talking about it more under this aspect of he's, what he's really talking about is the flesh, that weakness of human nature that moves towards death and that, and that, won't, and that resists the spirit, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, he, uh, and kind of that, that reality that we're describing where there's, because there's that weakness inherent to our nature, there's that feeling like things are dualistic. So in the beginning, she talks about how when he, whenever he talks about the body, it's very hostile. Like, I'm at war with you, and I'm trying to kill you, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so one way that it could be summed up, there was another um, quote that I have here from one of the Desert Fathers, where he's out in the desert, and he's, he would work in the middle of the noonday sun in the desert, and like really like torment his body. <laughs> and somebody asked him, what are you doing? And he says, it kills me, I kill it. <laughs> you know? Like that was his, his attitude about it, you know? And that's kind of, in St. John of the Ladder, that's sort of, at the beginning, that's, Elizabeth Theokratov is saying that that's the way he's talking about it. Um, but then she says, by the middle of the book, the 15th step, it's much more ambiguous and kind of ambivalent, like the attitude towards the body is much more nuanced, you know? And then on the 30th step, the body has actually become like radiant and illumined by the grace of God, you know? And, and so there's this interesting progression. So I want to read to you those two passages, you know, one from the, the middle, from step 15, where it starts to become more ambivalent, is, is talk about the body. And, um, and then the one from the 30th step, um, where he talks about the, the kind of the glorification of the body with the soul, you know, all together, the whole person together. Um, and so listen, this is, he's talking about his body. He says, I do not know by what habit and rule of life I can bind this friend of mine and judge him by the example of the other passions. For before I can bind him, he is let loose before I can condemn him, I am reconciled to him. Before I can punish him, I bend down and pity him. How can I hate him, whom by nature I habitually love? How can I get free of him, with whom I am bound forever? How can I escape what will share my resurrection? How am I to make immortal what has received a mortal nature? What argument can I use to one who has the argument of nature on his side? If I bind him by fasting, by condemning my neighbor, I am handed over to him again. <laughs> if des desisting from judgment, I overmaster him, then being proud of this, I am subjected to him again. Um, which, by the way, there's something even almost saving about that, that reality of our weakness, because every time we get proud, our weakness is there to remind us, like, humble yourself. Um, for he is an ally and a foe, an assistant and a rival, 
a defender and a traitor. If I humor him, he attacks me. If I exhaust him, he gets feeble. When he is rested, he misbehaves himself. If I turn away in loathing, he cannot bear it. If I mortify him, I endanger myself. If I strike him down, I have nothing with which to obtain virtues. I embrace him, and I turn away from him. What is this mystery in me? What is the meaning of this blending of body and soul? How am I constituted a friend and a foe to myself? Tell me, tell me, my yoke fellow, my nature, for I shall not ask anyone else in order to learn about you. How am I to remain unwounded by you? How can I avoid the danger of my nature? For I have already made a vow to Christ to wage war against you. How am I to overcome your tyranny? For I am resolved to be your master. <laughs> so you see that kind of ambiguousness of like, what is going on inside of me? And how did I, you know? And, but then, like she says, at the 30th step, um, there's this beautiful passage. And step 30, by the way, is about concerning the linking together of the supreme trinity among the virtues. And so it's all about faith, hope, and love. And again, getting back to how the image of a ladder doesn't, isn't always the greatest. <laughs> I shouldn't be saying that. Like, I'm going to get up, you know, if I ever meet St. John, I'll be like, what are you, you know, you're trashing my book? <laughs> but um, uh, how do you begin, like, how do you renounce the world unless there is some faith, some hope, some love, you know? So how do you even begin to repent if that isn't somewhat there? Even if it's a small way, like it has to be. And, and he even talks about that in the first chapter on, re, on renouncing the world. He says, you know, if you renounce the world out of hatred for the world, he says, you're just going to burn out. You'll be like something that blazes up with a nice looking fire and just eventually wastes itself really quickly. Cause he said, but he said, if you renounce the world out of love for God, then there's, there could be something enduring there. Um, but he says, in, in speaking about the body and kind of its um, uh, transformation by God's grace, um, he says, when the heart is happy, the face is cheerful. So when the whole man is in a manner commingled with the love of God, then even his outward appearance in the body, as in a kind of mirror, shows the splendor of his soul. This is how Moses had looked upon God. This is how Moses, who had looked upon God, was glorified. And so he's talking about like how the whole um, body of the person can participate in that glory. And... Um, and Elizabeth Theokritov also talks about Abba Pombo, who was a, one of the Desert Fathers as well. And in his life, when they're, they're talking about his life, it talks about how he actually prayed to God not to be glorified on earth. Like he didn't want anybody, he kind of didn't want anybody to know who he was. And, but the Lord had different plans in mind. <laughs> and... And this, his life describes his face as shining like lightning so that others couldn't look at him. So something like the transfiguration that you hear, that you see in the Gospels, 
And the description says, he appeared like a king on his throne, radiant with the image of the glory of Adam. In other words, he had attained the truly natural state for which mankind was created, and which points to the, the end of all things, you know, what humanity was made for. And again, that's, that involves both the body and the soul, They're not separate from one another. Um, another thing that we can think about, getting back to, remember I told you there was that one desert father who said, it kills me, so I kill it. That kind of really harsh um, approach. Uh, there's other examples from the ascetical tradition that are actually very different. And so one of the other desert fathers, instead of being extremely abusive like that, you know, towards his body, somebody came to visit him once and they saw him like soaking his feet in, in some water to, you know, to cool him off or comfort them or whatever. And the, the person was kind of shocked. It's like, you're this monk, you're supposed to be this great ascetic, and here you are like soaking your feet like you're in a spa or something. And, um, and he said, he said, we have not been taught to be killers of our bodies, but killers of our passions. You know? And again, that's getting at that distinction between flesh and fleshly existence and the body itself, which is good. Um, and so there's a lot of ways that... Um, there's other examples, too, from the lives of the Desert Fathers. Um, one of them is St. Anthony the Great himself, who lived in a cave for a very long time in seclusion and with really extreme fasting for years, you know? And you would think that he would emerge from that cave when he finally did and that he would look really wasted and, you know, and, and like a skeleton and, you know, kind of emaciated and weak. But when people saw him, they were shocked at how everything about him seemed perfectly balanced. Like he wasn't totally flabby. He wasn't, you know, heavy. He was like a, just a, a balanced weight good strength and vigor, you know, his face was bright and cheerful, you know, so everything about him looked like perfectly um, in uh, balance or repose, you know, when he emerged from the cave, and it's like, well, how, do, how does this work, you know, <laughs> because he wasn't feeding the body anything, and he was living in a cave, and, you know, um, and so there's, that's another thing to think about, is how the the, the body is part of the transformation of the soul, but then also the soul of the body. Um, so Elder Sifroni, um, in one of his recent, well, a, a talk that he gave to the monastery in England, um, not entirely remembering it quickly, correct, entirely correctly, I don't think, but basically he was talking with them about how when people are doing something, like fasting, or something like that, and they're prompted by love, he says, then they can go a long time without even eating anything, you know? And that's why you see that sometimes, you know, in the scriptures with Moses, um, with Christ, like fasting before the beginning of his public ministry for 40 days. Um, and so you see examples of that, and you see it in the 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 saints of the church and, um, and different people that, that, that when things are done out of love and with hope and with faith that you can endure a lot. 
Um, but then he says, by the same token, there are people who have died within just a few days when they were starved because they were being abused and imprisoned and all this other stuff. And um, uh, and so he says, there's a huge difference. And what it has to do with is is the, the, the aspect of the human being that we would talk about as being the inner aspect, the soul, you know, and the, the mind, the heart, and how we're relating, you know, kind of in that, that unity of the person. <laughs> you know? um, why are we doing what we're doing? And, and it can often happen when we begin things like Great Lent that um, people may have... Uh, um, psychological a psychological condition that's very self-loathing and views themselves as worthless and and all of those things and then right like they try to fast I'm going to fast really strenuously it's like what's the motivation you know and what they end up finding is that all of that ascetical effort all of that struggle just makes their life worse and worse and worse and worse. And, and it's not because the, you know, there's something wrong with fasting and there's something wrong with ascetical struggle, but it's because there's, there's, there's something going on there that has to do with the motivation. Like, why are we doing what we're doing? And, um, and then, you know, by the same token, if people are fasting and, and performing ascetical deeds out of um, fear of God. But God, and, and this is, you know, it's, it's you remember, <laughs> it was a pastor recently, Mark Driscoll, I remember hearing that he actually told people, like, God might hate you. You know, he, <laughs> he, he was a very he's a strange guy. But, um, but there's certain, you know, theologies and understandings of who God is that are like that. And maybe people have had abusive fathers or whatever, and they think of God as being like this guy that's, that's unpredictable and that's malicious and that's kind of waiting to catch them in the act so that he can give them the boot, destroy them. You know what I mean? So some people think of God like that way. And so imagine if, and so, and so imagine, and so they might not have a lot of self-loathing, but they might really think that like, you know, I'm pretty sure that God hates me. He might love me, but I'm pretty sure that he hates me. And so I need to fast in order to, like, deflect that wrath away. Um, and, and so they do it, right? And again, there, it's very little fruit that's born from that. Um, there's a story, again, from the Desert Fathers about two monks that fell into sin. And they were um, kind of both went into these caves for a while to repent, to pray to God, to ask for forgiveness. And at the end of the time, they both come out, and one of the monks looks like he's just at death's door. You know, he's so broken down, and you know, and, and the other monk looks cheerful and fine. Again, like, sort of like St. Anthony coming out of the cave where he looked, he looked healthy and balanced. And they asked the two monks, they said, well, what, what were you doing? <laughs> you know? like, and the one monk that looked really emaciated and like near death, he said, all I thought about was the judgment of God and that he was going to cast me into hell for my sin. That's what I meditated on day and night the entire time. And, and you know, and so see the results. But then the other monk said, all I thought about 
was how merciful and loving God is. And that I knew that I can't trust in myself, but I knew that I can, I, the only thing that I could rely on was his steadfast love and his mercy. And, and so he came out fine. You know? And the interesting thing about the story is that the fathers, after talking to them, you know, the other monks, they said, we understood that God accepted the repentance of both of them. <laughs> you know? and, um, but at the same time, and this is something that uh, St. Porphyrios would tell people all the time, you know, he would look at the one monk that meditated on the love of God and on his compassion, and he says, do that, because clearly that's a lot easier. You know, and recognizing the weakness of our flesh and the way that we kind of stumble constantly and that we're always falling, he says, take that easier path because, you know, it's like taking this hard path of focusing on the reality of judgment and, you know, and condemnation and all this other stuff, he's like, it's, it's not for you. <laughs> you know? and, um, and of course, there are still today, um, and certain. Like Saint Silouan of Mount Athos was one of those saints that, that did follow the way of that extreme. Um, so the word that Christ gave to him when he was at the brink of complete despair was, "Keep thy mind in hell and despair not." And so that was the way Saint Silouan lived: is that like he viewed and lived and prayed and understood himself as completely condemned. Um, and yet he did not despair because he knew that in the flames of that hell, Christ was present, you know. Um, but it's interesting, one of the, um, so Saint Silouan was a spiritual father to Saint Sophroni, who's a spiritual father to Elder Zacharias, who's in England right now, like teaching. And, and he has a talk about that saying that was given to Saint Silouan, keep thy mind in hell and despair not. Um, and one of the first things he says when he's giving the talk is he says, this teaching isn't for everyone. You know, and he said, there's a lot of people that have the stuff I was talking about earlier, psychological issues, misunderstandings of who God is, you know, um, and, he, and he says, don't try to force something like this. It's like, this was a word that was given to St. Silouan and it was something that God called him to, but he's like, not everybody follows that same path, you know? And he says, in general, um, for most people, the path that we need to follow is the path of giving glory to God for everything and giving thanksgiving. Because he said the same humility that Silouan was expressing is there in that attitude of just giving thanks for everything, even things that are difficult and hard, you know? <laughs> and so he said, if you can do that, like, you know, it's okay. You don't have it, you know. And so it was a really, it was a re I think it's, it's really important to, to kind of make that distinction when we think about the stuff that we do. Why do we fast? Um, and so I think those are probably the main points that I wanted to cover. I'll read to you this one last quote from Elizabeth de Elkertoff. To kind of wrap it up, she says, we can see then what a close synergy exists between our souls and bodies in the spiritual life and how asceticism enables them to work together in harmony. And so that's kind of the aim of fasting is that you want body and soul, those aspects of the human being to be in harmony and not 
so that we're not in a position where we're opposed to ourselves all the time. Um, we deprive our body of creature comforts in the service of the soul. But this very process reminds the body of its high calling and prepares it for its own future glory. One of the desert mothers, Alma Theodora, refutes the Manichaeans, and the Manichaeans were dualists. So they were, they were people that were extremely, you know, the whole world is black and white, and um, everything that has to do with material reality is sinful, and everything that has to do with spiritual life is good, you know. Um, and so Amma Theodora refutes the Manichaean's contempt for the body and points us in a different direction when she says, give the body discipline and you will see that the body is for him who made it. You know, that the body itself it, it belongs to God. You know, the whole person belongs to God. Um, and so that, that kind of struggle for unity is, is, uh, is, is, you know, a lot of the aim of asceticism. Um, so, those are the main things I wanted to share with you tonight. Did you guys get to read the letter of St. Basil that I emailed out? How many people were able to read it? Just a couple? So, it's a nice letter. Um, but did you guys have any questions? About the beginning of Lent, anything like that? Some of you, like Kevin's been through it before, <laughs> three times. Um, Tyson's been through it. I'm not sure. I don't think anybody else here has, though. But, but did you have any questions about it that come to mind? Or about anything that I just said, too. <laughs> yeah, quieting the mind. I've, I've had that. I've had that on my mind a lot lately. So from Saint Basil's letter. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it's funny with some of the personally some of the things I'm having trouble with. I read that and I thought, mm, and, and you're teaching us too. And I'm like, mm, kind of had that gut feeling that the mind need to be quiet. That's a real hard thing. To mm -hmm. do to keep the mind quiet, but when the mind can finally get it quiet, it's really, it's really good. It's nice. So that's um, something to work on. Yeah, and you can see um, in terms of uh, ascetical life, uh, and you know how we're talking about this relationship between the soul and the body. Uh, that's why, and and even, you know, uh, secular. Uh, psychologists would would know right? right that that if you start if you breathe deeply and slowly you know it, it helps to quiet your mind down you know um, and so again that's how like the body can play in to helping the soul you know <laughs> just like the soul can can help the body you know uh, um, then there's uh, so, so doing that, and then also within our prayer, um, and that's why the, the Jesus prayer can be really valuable in that regard. I mean, we have to think that, that when we pray, we're never praying for the sake of just kind of a mechanical accomplishment of like, we're not just trying to achieve a state of calm or something like that. Um, uh, prayer is, is about encountering God. You know, 
Um, but it is the reality that breathing deeply, doing all of those things, can enable us and put us in a much better position, you right. know, to be able to right. encounter God because like St. Basil is saying, you're, you're quieting the mind down um, so that you can actually, and like the scriptures say, be still and know that I am God. Um, so as, as you kind of practice that, that stillness, it's, it's, we enable ourselves to be able to be open to encountering God. But at the same time, uh, there's, there's that reality of us needing to be patient and kind of open and, and recognizing that, that God certainly isn't a genie in the bottle. That like, well, if I just breathe a certain way or sit with a certain posture, he's going to show up. You know, it's like, well... <laughs> He's always there. Right, God isn't somebody that you... He's always there. Right. Sometimes I I just, I I get crazy, and I think that's the training and what you're teaching us is really, um, the discipline will bring more for us. And I think another thing, too, with the the mind, um, so there's the Jesus prayer, and then also like reading reading the Psalms um, and praying the Psalms. Um, You know, I, I frequently do that when I'm feeling totally... Inside and like really torn up and frustrated and you know discouraged, like I just open the Psalms and, and start praying, reading them out loud or, or quietly, you know, um, because that 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 inspired word of the scriptures they really they're inspired prayers, you know, and they they connect with so much, um, they express such a range of emotion and um, and so it's it's really good stuff, yeah. Do you have certain psalms you go to, or do you just open up the psalms? So a lot of the time, I'll just end up opening up. But there are certain ones that are really, you know, very emotive. (laughs) And um, um, I always forget, like, the numbers of things. But but there's a lot lot that are very um, good. And... Within the, like this, there's there's the six psalms that we read at the beginning of of Orthros, um, and that's in Greek. The term is like hex, hexapsalmos, which which is it's like one word for saying the six psalms, um, and they're kind of almost viewed like the way that they're collected and, and read in Orthros. There's there's kind of this understanding that they're sort of all of a piece, like they're they're kind of treated like all together. Um, and and those have a lot that are very um, there's just a lot of beautiful things like you know my soul like parched earth thirsts for you you know those those passages about like that longing for God um, and they have that sense too because what's going on at that time in the service is that there's this understanding that um, it's it's this, it's taking place um, kind of liturgically like right before the dawn. You know, so it's that place where it's like darkest, and and so the psalms that are that are read there kind of reflect that place of being in the um, kind of in the valley of the shadow of death and like crying out to God. Um, and uh, there's even a tradition that talks about that at the last judgment, that's how long it will take to to. There's this, <laughs> it's a tradition. You know what I mean? It's like a. a traditional story that at the last judgment that the, the reading of the six psalms will be read and like that's how long it will take to judge all of the nations 
which is only like a, you know, it's like 10 minutes. But, um, uh, and, and the understanding too within the church, we're not very good about this here, and I, I could be more strict with people, but like you're not even supposed to cross yourself or move while those Psalms are being read. Um, because the understanding is, is that you're, you're being still before the reality of God's judgment. And, and at this point, like there's not even anything that you could do, you know, not even cross yourself. You just have to wait. You know, and um, uh, but then of course, what happens right after that is we start singing. Um, there's the great litany, and then we start singing. God is the Lord, and has revealed Himself to us. Blessed is He who comes into the in the name of the Lord. You know, and so there's this sense of like, in the midst of that complete <laughs> stillness and immobility of, of 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 death, suddenly like God appears, <laughs> you know, to like bring salvation. And the psalm verses that are read, you know, that all the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I withstood them. And, um, and that psalm is really beautiful. That's a really beautiful song because it talks about being, like, completely surrounded, you know, as, as if, like, you know, a bunch, a swarm of bees is, like, around me and, like, ready to attack. And, and, but, but in the name of the Lord I withstood everything. You know, God saved me and raised me up from, the, from that certain death, you know. Um, and... Yeah. Tyson? I have two questions. Um, yeah. Neither of them are related, related to each other. The first one, more about the body. Um, <clears throat> to what extent does or should exercise, I guess, play a part in how you, I guess, conduct yourself mm-hmm. in general? I think, I think it's really valuable. And... Of course, it'll be um, different for different people. Um, so, for instance, some people might hike. <laughs> you know, some people might, like, I think you lift, right? You do the, yeah, you're a strong guy. You're not like the, you're like the weak father, Jeffrey. But, like, uh, um, uh, and then other people, you know, they might be involved in a lot of different things. Uh, but I think it is really valuable. And that's, you know, there was another talk by... Saint Sophroni to the to the monastery in England, um, again preparing for Great Lent, and and it was interesting. One of the things that he mentioned was because uh, at the monastery, when Great Lent begins, the services get a lot longer. They do here too, but there's it's even more so. It's kind of magnified by by a lot. Um, so the services are longer. They're in church way more often. And they aren't working as much. They kind of like set aside a lot of their, their regular work because they're spending more time in prayer. And, and it's interesting, in one of his talks, he talks about how he thinks that one of the reasons that the church also had them do so many prostrations during the first week of Lent is because it's not good for the body to just be standing immobile for that amount of time and that the church recognized that and then like this is actually a contribution to our health because otherwise like we'd just be standing around (laughs) we'd be praying but we're not moving you know and he said and that's not it's not good um and so we actually have these kind of prostrations that are introduced to get people moving get the blood pumping and the way that they the way that the prostrations are done in um uh, 
monasteries is, is potentially, I've, I've never actually seen it done because I've always been in churches when we do like the canon of St. Andrew and, uh, and stuff, but I'm, I'm thinking that you're, you're talking like hundreds <laughs> of prostrations during the service, during like the reading of the canon of St. Andrew and stuff. Um, so it's, it's a lot, like it's a real workout. <laughs> you know? but, so. What was the second question? It's, I feel like it's, it, and again, thinking about like the body's participation in things, that, that it is important, you know, to, to pray out loud as much as we can, sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, and so that, um, I remember seeing one priest write about that he said at least, at least we're, we like mouth the words, even if we're not making it, you know? Um, even, even if there's, there's not hardly any sound coming out of an egg, you know? Um, and so he recommended that, for instance, for reading like the daily hours and stuff like that, like if you're gonna read the Psalms and stuff. Um, and again, it has to do with that, bringing the body into the equation. Uh, but then of course, the, um, with the Jesus prayer, it, there often is a progression from saying the prayer audibly to saying it quieter to not moving your mouth at all, you know, and so that the prayer is going on inside. Um, and so I think, you know, both are, are aspects of prayer life. But it's more common, it's definitely way more common if we're reading from a prayer book or like uh, if we're reading the hours or something like that, that we would kind of say them, at least like move our lips, you know, <laughs> to, the, to, the, to the words that we're reading. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. This is bouncing off of his last question. Um, when you pray, is it, should we stand or Sit. I know in church we when yeah we always stand in church. We always but stand in church, but when we when I think, we're at home, yeah. We and that, do we do? What do we do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that um, again, it's it kind of. It, there's actually a passage in Saint Isaac of Syria's writings where he he talks about all of these different ways that people pray and the different postures that they have and all this other stuff. And, and you get the feeling that, and, and he's saying these are just all these different ways, and, and you get the feeling that, well, oh, there's a lot of them. <laughs> you know? And so, for instance, it's, I don't think it's uncommon at all for people when they're saying the Jesus prayer just to be seated upright, you know. Um, and, uh, but then if you were to, like, say, morning prayers, they're, they're, they would typically be done standing. Um, but then other times you might kneel, 
you know, and, and, and it's just kind of, uh, it's, it's, I think it's good to have kind of a rule, um, but then rules, because we're not bound in, in a sense to like a law about the way that we do things, that the rules adapt to different um, circumstances. Uh, like Tyson, you know, just a simple example is like what Tyson was describing, like you don't want to wake up your roommate, you know, or bother them. Um, so you adapt. <laughs> you pray, you know. And, um, it's still good. Uh, and, and the same way that it may be the case that we feel um, there was one of the elders, I think of the Altina Monastery, it might have been St. Ambrose, or somebody was talking with him about how his feet hurt so much when he was standing in church. And Ambrose was like, well, just sit down, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, God is looking at your heart. He's not looking at your feet. Um, and so we have to think that, and so that's a good thing to remember, again, about the ascetical life. And everything that we've been talking about, right, is talking about how the body um, is, is fertile ground and it, and it responds to, like, what you give to it. And, and it, it needs discipline and direction because it has a tendency towards, you know, weakness and corruption. Um, and, and so the things that we do when we stand, when we pray with our lips and with our voice and all of this stuff, we don't do any of it because God needs any of it. <laughs> it's because we need it, you know. And, and, and just like anything, if you find... And this, this requires discernment. So that's why it's always good to be in conversation with other people, especially with your local priest, if you can. Um, and for me to be in conversation with people too. Uh, is that, you know, within conversation and just thinking about like your, your rule, like you may find that what I've been doing isn't beneficial right now, you know? And then, you know, it may be the case that you need to do something different. And like I said, there's a lot of different ways of doing it, you know, of, of praying. Um, and so you may have to, to adapt uh, because it's, it's not functioning, you know, the, the way it's, it's, not, it's not sort of bearing fruit, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. just going to comment to um, my brother here that I feel like when we stand to pray, it's showing more respect. Mm -hmm. So I try my best to do it. But at nighttime, my body is warped. Yeah, so you sit and or something, so, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, because that way I can focus my energy and my thoughts on my prayers as opposed to, oh, I'm so tired. Right. <laughs> you know, I can stay focused better that way. Right. And, um, and so those are the things that, there's all of those um, circumstances that we have to think about. Um, and it, it is good to, to usually do that, like in conversation with, with somebody else and not just kind of make it up on our own. Because it's like we always kind of have to check ourselves against... Um, you ever see that movie, A Beautiful Mind, where the guy's crazy? And then at the, but by the end of it, he's, he's just sort of living with the reality that he's schizophrenic, you know? I mean, he sees things, and, and somebody comes up to him and talks to him, and he asks the person that he's certain is actually there, he says, do you see them? <laughs> you know, like, is any of this real? <laughs> you know? 
and uh, instead of thinking that he knows, you know, because that's what got him in trouble before, is he went off and, and to, to totally like went off the wall because he was believing all these things that he was seeing. Uh, so, anything from the, the peanut gallery in the back? Mm -hmm. Prostrating for repentance. Yeah. Like uh, standing with arms raised for praise and um, just kind of like an embodied style of mm -hmm. uh, something that, like, it, it'll feel kind of organic to your body. Uh, not I think. In all cases, obviously, but, but you know, like you were saying, depending on the circumstances. Yeah, I think so. And, um,. And especially when we're alone, you know. Um, and again, those different postures. Like, um, there's descriptions of people praying all night like this, you know, with their arms out, stretched, or praying with their hands up, you know, all night. Um, and then, but on the, people praying on their knees, uh, or with their head on the floor, you know, <laughs> and are kind of curled up into a ball. <laughs> um, there's actually, I remember Father Robert, a priest I used to serve with, we were looking at a, an icon of, of Elijah, the prophet. And, and he was kind of um, in the icon. And it's like the raven is coming, you know, to bring him bread. And, and he's, he's kind of curled up like this. And he has his head like way down here. You know? <laughs> and, and the way it's drawn, like Father Robert mentioned, that they're, they're implying through the iconography that, that Elijah was praying with the posture of like the Hesse cast monks, you know, that he was saying the prayer of the heart, like he had his, his head down. <laughs> and um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of different postures uh, that could be used. And I think definitely, especially in your private prayer, that they can be adapted like pretty readily, you know. You may, <laughs> you may find that you start reading exactly one of the Psalms and just want to kneel, you know, because it seems right. Um, or other prayers that are more penitential or something like that. Um, so, yeah. And then there's other times where it's kind of built in. Like we said, this, the prayer of St. Ephraim at the beginning tonight. And whenever that prayer is said in church or anywhere, people usually make a prostration, like they get all the way on the ground, <laughs> you know, like touch their head to the floor. Like it's just part of the way the prayer is said. It's kind of... Join together. Yeah, yeah. Well, what if I can't get up? Yeah. Well, that was there. There's yeah. There's people at our church that'll tell me that. They're like, well, I'm not going to kneel. And I'll usually tell people too. I'll usually tell people if you can't kneel, it's okay. Don't kneel. You know what I mean? If you can't actually be under, like during Pentecost, there's a service where we say a lot of the kneeling prayers. It's the first time we kneel after Pascha, um, and. And the prayers are really long, and, and we're kneeling for a long time. And so there's people who will tell me, like, I can't, can't do it. You know? <laughs> but, Bring your pillow, but I don't know right. if that would really work. Right, yeah, I don't know if it would help all that much, you know. So, are there any other questions or concerns? Thank you for teaching us so much tonight.
Yeah, I hope it was helpful. And I did, like I said, I recorded it so we can um, go back and review if anybody wants to. Um, and then for the people that, that weren't able to come to. So, um, I'm trying to think. I guess there isn't anything else that I wanted to say. Um, we'll probably meet again um, or we will. I have it on the calendar. Do you feel like you'd like to do this more often? Or is once a month enough? Or more, more often? More often? Yeah. We're hungry. So we can, try, we can try to schedule that. It does get tricky uh, during Great Lent um, because we have a lot more services. So there's there's pre-sanctified liturgy on Wednesday and on Friday. And then there's usually um, what's called an akathist after the pre-sanctified liturgy on Friday. So there's two services that night. Um, so it would probably have to be like on a Tuesday night. I don't know if that matters to anybody. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they would be here anyways for the relationship project thing. Yeah, so so we could probably do that. Yeah, go ahead. Is there any service that um, we, as new ones, would not belong in? No, you could attend any of them. And actually, especially during Lent, by the way, uh, originally, um, the, way, the way that Lent developed, it's actually meant specifically for catechumens. Like it was kind of created, the whole cycle of all the services and all the other stuff is, is designed to prepare people to be baptized on Pascha. Um, so yeah, the more services you can attend during Lent, <laughs> like, <laughs> the better, because they're all kind of like structured in such a way that they're, they're teaching about kind of the core things of the, the, of the faith. Um, and, and there's a lot of readings. It's, it's interesting, too. There's a lot of readings um, for that reason. Like, there's a lot of readings from Scripture, and, there's, and, and most of those readings are from the Old Testament um, because it's, it's preparatory stuff. So we start reading from Genesis, the book of Proverbs, um, the book of Isaiah. And, um, and then once we get closer to Holy Week, we start getting into reading from Exodus, um, and during, during Holy Week, there's tons of biblical readings, like from Exodus, we read the entire book of Job, we read the, you know, there's one service that, and, and in Greek practice, they've dropped a lot of the readings during the Holy Saturday liturgy. So what used to happen is you would have, you know, we have liturgy on Sunday morning, um, but on Saturday of Holy Week, which is like the day where the, it's kind of like, Christ is in the tomb, like it's described as like the great Sabbath on which the Lord rested from all his works. Um, and during that service, um, there, there, there used to be like 20 Old Testament readings that are super long. And, and the reason for that was that you would have the liturgy going on in church and then outside, people would be baptized. Like, while that's going on in the church, outside, people are being baptized, chrismated, and then they would all come in the church 
you know, and uh, for the sort of like, like after those Old Testament readings. And so there were so many readings in order to allow for the time necessary <laughs> for people to be baptized to come in. And so that's why in Greek practice today, because we never do that anymore, they dropped a lot of the readings because it's like we're not going to, you know, sit here and read for two hours when, <laughs> when there's, no, there's no purpose to it. But, um, but I, I kind of miss them. So I was ordained in a church that was more of the Russian tradition. So I, I miss like, and they keep, they read them all. You know, they, they, they do everything even if it doesn't make any sense anymore. They'll just keep doing it. <laughs> just like, and, uh, but, I, but it was enjoyable because it's like you're just in church and it's just like you're just all, you know, for like, seriously, for a solid hour, you're just listening to people read from the Old Testament, like all of these biblical stories and stuff. But, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, in the Catholic Church, they still do the baptisms on Easter. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that'll happen, and it, it happens in some places in the Orthodox Church, but even mm -hmm. if it did, um, it wouldn't be done in that way. Like, we wouldn't be have the baptism going on outside like that and then bring them in in the middle of the liturgy. It would be more like it would be in the context of the liturgy itself that it would happen. So, um, so it would be a bit different. Yeah. Okay.